All right, where are we? In, uh, John chapter 11. We've been going through the book of John. We're kind of around halfway now, trying to get through it in a year. We're going to get through most of it in 2014. And we've got to one of the most um, well-known stories in the gospel, um, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Okay, it's one of those ones that a lot of people know about. Lazarus dies, Jesus comes and raises him from the dead. And in our sort of study of the gospel at this point, it is, um, we've got to a transition. Jesus' public ministry... His sort of first, his three and a half years of, of doing the stuff, teaching, preaching, performing miracles, has basically come to the end in the mind of John in what he's writing. And we're now going through a couple of chapters of transition. And the back end of John's gospel will all be the sort of last week of Jesus' life Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, uh, teaching, Last Supper, and then ultimately his death and resurrection. So that's where we are now. And this, this bit we've got here is, um, is a transition period where Jesus is basically kind of withdrawn, waiting for that time to go to Jerusalem. And what we're going to be dealing with is not exactly a fun subject. It's the subject of death and how Jesus deals with that and how those around it deal with that. And I don't know what your experience is of dealing with death and loss. Um, My personal one over the last few years has been, um, I've had more than I've ever had in my life. And that is in the last few years, I've lost um, all four of my grandparents. Uh, when I um, got married, I had four grandparents, and over the last few years, they have all died for various reasons, and I've conducted, I conducted three of their funerals and spoke at three of their funerals, um, uh, because, you know, when you're the vicar, you just get asked to do that kind of thing. So I've had to, I've presided over three of their funerals. Uh, my grandparents lived a long lives. They all died in their 80s, uh, mid-80s, and they all had very full lives. Whenever, when you reflect on them, when you're preparing kind of a funeral address and that sort of thing, I reflected on the things they'd seen in their life, and it was staggering what they'd seen in the kind of 80 years. They all were involved in the Second World War at various points. They saw kind of kings and queens come and go in this nation. They saw their grandchildren, me, and their great-grandchildren. They met at various points, lots to kind of celebrate. They actually saw England win a World Cup the one time. They were alive. I'm not sure any of us were, but they, they were. They actually can experience that. And we had a laugh about some of the things that they had seen. But despite their kind of fullness of life, there was still a desperate sadness at their passing. The fact that uh, I would miss them as my grandparents and my my brothers were there, my cousins were there. And we would miss them. um, And and there was a sadness to it. So despite the celebration, there was a sadness. And when dealing with death, there is that. Often you can celebrate wonderful things about the deceased life, but also you have to um, recognise it's sad, you will miss them, you will not see them anymore. And we're going to see these kind of emotions come out today as we look at the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. And what we've got in this story is Jesus up till now has been teaching things about himself. He's saying, I've been, he said he's the bread of life, he said he's the water of life, he said he's even been the light of life. But now he actually, he puts himself in the category of he is the resurrection and the life, is a famous quote we're going to get from this story. Jesus actually is where life what life is all about. He's at that point. He's the centre of everything where it comes to, to life and death and the resurrection. And he puts it very clearly on himself. So if you've got that Bible, let's go to um, verse 1. And I'm just going to read a short section and then we'll talk about it. And we'll go through this passage section by section. So, chapter, uh, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord, with, the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, 
The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. Okay, this first section. Uh, you've got this village, Bethany, which is just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, east of Jerusalem, so very close to um, the capital. It's the home of three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, um, who were there. And it says about Mary that she was the one who anointed Jesus' feet. That's actually coming in the next chapter, beginning of chapter 12. We have that incident. So John's referring ahead to something that's going to come up, and we'll deal with that when it comes around. And Lazarus, Lazarus is very ill, uh, extremely poorly to the point where they think, you know, this is, this is turning for the worse. He didn't just have a cold. He had something that was um, going to threaten his life. So they sent a message to Jesus saying, Lazarus, the one that you love. And so there was obviously a bond between Jesus and this family saying, he's very, very ill. Could you come? They obviously know Jesus They've been following him for a while. They know his reputation and they know what power he has and what he can do. So you think, my friend, my sibling, my brother is ill. We need him well. We'll go and send for Jesus because we know what he can do. He can heal people. He can cure people. We've seen him and we've heard the stories about him. Um, The lame man, the blind man and numerous other stories of Jesus' healing power. So they send it for him. And Jesus responds and when he he gets the message, they send. Jesus says, oh, the, the illness does not lead to death. Is for the glory of God and that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. He's not saying that it's not fatal, because we know it was. Lazarus died, as we, if we read forward in the story. What he's saying is that it will not ultimately end in death. It's not where, where it's actually going. And actually, it's the, the purpose of it, what it's going to bring about is glory for Jesus. He's saying it's actually going to bring about glory for Jesus. Uh, the Son of God, who's referring to himself, might be glorified through it. So actually, he says, ultimately, this is where this is going to go. It's going to go in the end where people will praise me for it and that Jesus would be glorified. And John makes it very clear that Jesus loves this family. So this is not an act of kind of callous indifference on the part of Jesus. He actually clearly loves them. And there's obviously some, there's some bond between Jesus and the family that goes beyond the fact that Jesus loved everyone. There's obviously some connection they had that was a little bit deeper. Um, and they knew that Jesus had a deep affection for Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. So this isn't Jesus just being callous and indifferent about it. Jesus is actually, he loves them, and they know it, and John wants to state that. And he's motivated by that. And Jesus basically waits where they are. And he waits two extra days, which is a strange response when actually someone you love is ill. And actually it says Jesus waited where he was um, for two extra days. And uh, the reasons why Jesus gives, actually, is because he's saying, actually, what's going to happen is, if I wait here, the results of this will strengthen your faith more. 
than if I just went back and hit left right now and, and dealt with the situation. The waiting is actually going to result in more glory for God and your faith being strengthened. And I don't know if, we've, if you've been in a position where you're waiting for something from God. You've asked God for something and you're in that period of, come on, are you going to deliver? Are you going to kind of, kind of do what you'd promised? Are you going to come and show up into this particular situation? Because that waiting period can be excruciating. If you've ever kind of prayed for something, asked for something, said, God, I want you to kind of get involved in this situation, and you're in the waiting period that seems to stretch on and on and on. And when you're in a waiting period, it can feel like an eternity, even if it's actually a relatively short space of time. And what we can learn from this is actually that God is in the waiting, and actually he's got purposes he's working out. And this particular one, Jesus is saying, actually, your faith is going to be strengthened out of this, and God will get the glory from this. And he waited there for two extra days. And then eventually he says, well, we're going to go back to Judea, uh, where Bethany was, in that part, where Jerusalem and Bethany were. And the disciples are shocked at this because Jesus had just effectively been run out of Jerusalem, as we saw in the last chapter, where they wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him for blasphemy. We saw that at the end of chapter 10. It said Jesus withdrew himself across the Jordan, where John used to preach, to come with, you know, he's getting away from that. He's withdrawing from public life because he knows they're after him. So the fact that Jesus is saying, right, I'm going back, and Bethany is so close to Jerusalem, so close to where the authorities are, people who want to get to him, they're like, you're going back into the lion's mouth, Jesus, and they want to kill you. Do you, do you get what's going on here? And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going back, and he uses this kind of picture of um, the 12 hours of the day, the way they marked up the day, when the sun was in the sky, they basically just broke it into 12. So it was a bit of a movable feast, depending you know, how much daylight you had. But they broke it into 12 hours, and that's when you, uh, when you worked, because you couldn't work at night because it was dark, and you couldn't see what you're doing. They didn't have electric lights um, that can illuminate things. And he, Jesus was saying, actually, when the sun's out, we work. And Jesus saying, the sun is here, I'm here, I'm performing my Father's will, and it's time for me to go and do that, and do what's going on. And actually, there will be a time coming when the sun won't be here, when I won't be able to perform these works. Jesus is alluding to his coming death, and actually saying, but now is the time, so I'm going to go with it. And he says, I'm going to go and raise Lazarus from his sleep. And the, the disciples, classic disciples, misunderstand him. They say, oh, he's just resting. Well, that's fine, we can go and wake him up. We can do that. Get up, Lazarus. You know, it's easy. And Jesus says, no, actually, he's died. He's died. And if you notice what he says in... Um, in verse 11, he says, our friend, but Jesus says, I'm going to wake him. He doesn't say we're going to wake him, because the power only resides in Jesus. He's the only one with authority to raise the dead. So Jesus makes it very plain. Lazarus has died. We're going back there um, for that. And then you get Thomas. Thomas gets a bad rap. He's often referred to as Doubting Thomas, as we'll see later in John's Gospel. He's the one who doubted Jesus' resurrection's resurrection. But his response here is brilliant. He knows that they're going back into a, a particular difficult situation where Jesus could be arrested, he could be killed. That's what they're trying to do. Any of his followers could also be round up and killed. And Thomas's response is, if you're going back into that, we're going with you. And if that means kind of you're going to death, we, we love you, we follow you, we believe in you, we're going to it too. It shows a great, great amount of courage on his part. Um, he misunderstands kind of what Jesus is doing, um, but he's... He, 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 what he echoes is the cry of all followers of Christ everywhere, is that actually we, go, we follow Jesus, even if that means going to death itself. And he's willing to make that call for him. Now, from this first section, what I'd just like to kind of draw out for us to learn is, 
you're taking notes, this will be point number one, is the, um, the certainty of death and the sovereignty of God. The certainty of death. Jesus, Lazarus and his family were loved by Jesus, it says. There was a peculiarity of their relationship where they could be, John could write, Jesus really loved them, when we know he actually he loved all. Yet, they suffered grief and they suffered death. Lazarus died. Death is certain for all of us. And whether we're followers of Jesus does not make us exempt. It doesn't make us exempt from suffering. It doesn't make us exempt from hardship. And it ultimately doesn't make us exempt from death. Whether it's at the end of our lives, because we've lived a full life, or whether it's what we might think early or cut short. Believers face death. They do, their loved ones do, their families do. It's part of kind of the, the way this world is. And it's a tough reality to live in. That actually death is all around us and we see it happening time and time again and we will have all experienced it in our, life, our own life at certain points. And if you haven't, you will do in the future. It's not pessimistic to say that. That's just reality. That's the way it's going to work. So death is a certainty. But behind that, there is a sovereignty of God that we need to grasp. And it's hard to sometimes reconcile the two together. Because... Jesus got news that Lazarus was ill. And what did Jesus do? He chose to wait where he was for two days. So you've got Jesus, the one with power and authority to to heal the sick, chose to wait where he was for two days. And he loved Lazarus. John made that clear. He loved Lazarus and his family. But yet he chose to wait where he was. Now, we know, because we've seen the rest of the story, and we'll see it worked out here, you can see the end, and you can see how it all fits together, that actually Jesus is going to go raise Lazarus from the dead, Everyone's going to be like, wow, that's amazing. They're going to be so overjoyed that Lazarus is back. And they're going to put their faith and trust in Jesus more because of what he's performed. So you can see the ultimate fruit of it and how wonderful that is. But when you're in it, you can't see that. For Mary and Martha watching their brother deteriorate, 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 thinking Jesus might be coming, Jesus might be coming. He didn't come and he dies. They then got to bury him, put him in a tomb. They're questioning what on earth is going on. Jesus wasn't here. Jesus didn't come up. Jesus didn't come through with the goods. They've got to go through the grief and pain of burying a sibling. We know the end of the story. We know how it brings glory to God and faith being strengthened and how God is seen as wonderful through this. And it becomes one of the most famous stories in the New Testament that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Even that name Lazarus is in popular culture. If you hear anything with Lazarus, you know it's about defeating death, prolonging life, all these sort of things. It's seeped into to everything. And for us, we need to approach our situations in life that we can't always see the end and we can't always see what's coming. That actually, we can't see what God's sovereign hand is doing. And we have to put our faith and trust in a loving God that one day it's all going to be worked out. Whether it's in this life or in the life to come, it's going to be worked out. Because God is good and God is faithful. And we have to face the certainty of death knowing actually it's here, it's around. But beyond that, behind that... Around that is a loving God who is working all things out and will ultimately serve it for our good and his glory. Let's read on. Next section. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, according to uh, rabbinic belief at the time, um, sort of round, was that when someone died, their soul, their spirit, whatever it was, hung round the, the corpse, if you will, for three days. That was sort of the belief. There was, so the soul of the departed would hang around the body for three days because on the fourth day, what usually happened was decomposition set in. It's a bit gross, but the, the body would start to decay. Warm climate, the body would start to rise. And at that point, the, the, the soul would move, move on, would disappear, and you would just have kind of the, um, the, the body left. And at that point, death was irreversible. It was, they were gone, and so on the fourth day. So it's significant that Jesus arrives four days after Lazarus is dead. Okay, so he's not just just departed. It's four whole days have gone by, and so Lazarus is, from Jewish culture, well and truly dead. We don't have this sort of uh, belief in our culture. When someone dies, that's it. But for the Jewish one, there was this kind of period. So the fact that Jesus is, is coming on the fourth day, what you've got is someone who is beyond he is well and truly dead. It is irreversible, and that's it. And John highlights again, they're coming to Bethany. It's so close to Jerusalem. There's this risk going on. And um, the, um, it seems that there are a lot of people there who've come to um, console the family. Uh, the commentators believe it was quite a prominent family, fairly wealthy family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And as a result, they would have had many people who would have, they'd have influenced who would have come and been... Um, a comfort um, at this time. And so Martha hears that Jesus is sort of finally arrived, you know, four days after kind of really when they need him. And she goes to speak to him. Martha is always portrayed as the more active one. If you remember the story of Mary and Martha from the other Gospels, Martha was the busy one, the active one doing stuff. So as soon as she hears Jesus is around, she flies out of the house to go and see him. And she comes to speak to Jesus. And her words that she speaks are kind of words of faith, but also of great grief, because she's lost her brother. And she speaks to Jesus and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knows the, who Jesus is. She knows what Jesus is capable of. And she, she's firmly believed that if Jesus had actually been here, he could have healed Nazareth. He could have, could have saved him. And so she's obviously clearly sad at the loss of her brother, but she's confident in who Jesus is and what Jesus is capable of. So there's this kind of... Um, faith-filled, grief sort of um, exclamation to Jesus. And then Jesus kind of ambiguously sort of says to her, well, that's all right, your brother will rise again. Your brother is going to rise again. And she misunderstands and basically says, well, yes, of course, on the last day. That was the belief. The, the souls of the faithful would be, would be raised on the last day by God and they would be with God kind of forever. That was her, her philosophy. And she was saying, yes, yes, he will be. He will rise again, Lord Somewhere down there, somewhere a long way away, uh, we will see him um, again. And it's kind of an abstract belief that Martha's like, yes, you're right, Lord, he will. Uh, We will see him again, he will rise again. But then Jesus turns it all on his head 
um, when he basically points everything back to himself. And this is the key of Jesus' teaching. When we examine Jesus' teaching, the big difference between it and every other spiritual leader, guru, is that his teaching points to himself. He brings it back to himself. He's not, point, he's, not, he's not trying to outline a way to live or rules of life or follow this path and you will get to whatever. It's all about, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the one. You have to believe in me. It's nothing else. It's no formula you have to, to go through, no program. It's all about me. It comes back to me. And he says, I am the one that you are to focus on. I'm the one you believe in. I am the resurrection and the life. And what that kind of outworking for us is that those who believe in Jesus will be raised on the last day. They will be raised on the last day. That is true. But actually, there's a sense the fact that Jesus is the life, it means you can enjoy that resurrection life now. It's not something you just have to wait to, to, till the end to, to experience. It's something that you, you connect with even now. Some people say it's not pie in the sky when you die, it's steak on the plate while you wait. You know, it's, it's this connecting with life even now. And Jesus says, belief in me is a current active thing. I'm the resurrection of life now. You connect with me, you get the benefits of it now. We've, we saw in the kind of, um, the last um, time we preached, or actually it was when David preached on the beginning of John 10, Jesus said, I've come that you would have life and have it abundantly. You, you'd experience that now. It's not something that you just, we, we look wistfully ahead. It's something that we experience right here, right now. And Jesus demands a personal response from Martha. Do you believe this? Because he says, anyone who believes in me shall never die. And what Jesus is pointing to, not that they'll ever face death, but actually their ultimate death, separation from God for eternity, you will not experience. And actually death will merely be um, the, the doorway to something better, a life with God forever. And he's saying it's not that you don't experience death, but that whole ultimate kind of finality of death, facing the wrath of God, you're never going to experience. He says, whoever believes in me will have that. But then he, he asked, do you believe that? Christianity is about making a personal response to Jesus. That's all it is. That's the fundamental, that's the key, that's the bottom line. You have to make a personal response to Jesus. No one else can make it for you. Being in this building doesn't make it. Reading your Bible doesn't make it. The only thing that makes it is you making a confession of faith and saying, I will follow Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe he is who he said he was. I believe he is God the Son. I believe he rose from dead, the death, and I will be his forever. And Martha, wonderfully, look what she says. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's come into the world. And this is an interesting response. This is Martha making this response in the midst of pain and anguish. Jesus hasn't done anything yet. Lazarus, her brother, is still dead. She still has that opening phrase of actually, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't be dead. That, that's where she was. So she was in this place of pain and suffering, of losing a sibling, and knowing that if, had Jesus been there, Jesus could have healed him, and this wouldn't have happened. And then Jesus just said, look at me, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe in me? And she responds, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God. Who's coming. She didn't say, I'll believe if you raise my brother from the dead. I believe if you sort all my problems out and make this life easier than it is, I believe it if you do that. No, it's I'll just believe. Her, her confession of faith in the midst of uh, great grief and suffering and pain is still a, 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 a confession of faith and to put a trust in Jesus. 
what I want us to take away from this section is, uh, number two, is the only hope in death is Jesus. The only hope in death is Jesus. When we face death, whether it's our own or someone we love, someone close to us, the only hope we can put our faith in, the only thing we can put our faith in that will not let us down is Jesus. We can try in so many other things. We try to prolong our life. We try to make sure we're fit and healthy, which is all a good thing. We put our faith in medical experts, doctors, drugs, etc., etc., which all have their place. They're all gifts of God to us. But ultimately, the only hope that's never going to let us down is Jesus. Jesus points to himself in this. I'm the resurrection and the life. And ultimately, we're going to face an enemy that we can't defeat. And that will be death itself. And the only person who can defeat that is Jesus. And the only way we can have hope in that is by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. And if we look at the life of Jesus, we project it forward from where we are in John's Gospel. We know that Jesus will ultimately be put on a cross. He will be arrested, he'll be betrayed, arrested, he'll be tried, he'll be executed, killed, he'll die on that cross. He'll be put in the tomb where all the dead go. But it says on the third day he rose again. And we read the rest of the New Testament, it says he broke the power of sin, he broke the power of death. He, he, it's gone. It's, he goes, I am, I've risen, I'm the one who has died and I'm back. You go look at the book of Revelation in chapter 1, what does Jesus say when he appears to John? Same John here. He appears to John many years later on the island of Patmos and he says, behold, I hold the keys to death and Hades. That means I can unlock it. It's like a, a big iron door that you, know, you can't penetrate. And Jesus says, that's all right, I've got the keys. I can, I've defeated death. I've destroyed death. Death is something that I have broken. It is under my feet. It is something that, that you don't have to fear with me. And our only hope when facing death is with Jesus. And the response for us as believers is to put our faith and trust in him. Put our faith and trust in him when we find it in our own life. I'm going to be 40 this year. Um, I know I don't look like it, but I am. Actually, I'm not this year. Next, this year's beginning in September, so this coming year I'm going to be 40. And I'm having, that, I'm having that kind of process in my head where I'm getting to the point where I'm, by the grace of God, reaching halfway. You know, let's think, let's look, let's, you know if we judge the, the statistics, I might well be halfway through my life. I might be less, which is really kind of terrifying and sobering, but actually that's reality. Time marches on. I get older. And, and it's just like, okay. This, there's going to come a point when my body will start slowing down and I won't be as, I haven't admitted it to myself yet, where I won't be as fast or as strong as I was when I was in my 20s. You know. And you think, okay, you're, you're processing these things. And actually the only thing I can do in that thing is put my faith and trust in Jesus that actually he's got me. And he'll take me through whatever it is to ultimately one day when I have to die, um, I've got to do it. If you're not a believer here, you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus because when facing death, your own or anyone else's, he's the only hope that can carry you through because he's, th- he's the only one who's been there and come back. <laughs> Ta-da! Did it. I've got the power. I've got the keys. I can unlock that door. I can take you through that time. Let's move on. Verse uh, 28. It says, when he said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. 
And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So he responds Martha. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? What we have here is, Martha now tries to go and sort of have a private word with the sister saying, Jesus has arrived, the one we sent for. Kind of, we, know, we know who he is, he's here. Um, and Mary tries to go and see to him, but she, unfortunately any kind of private meeting is thrown out the window because the people who are with there kind of consoling see it and they all follow so Mary tries to go and meet Jesus, but there's now a gaggle of people uh, chasing um, them. And what this kind of points to is it was Jewish custom at the time that when you had a funeral, um, that even a poor family, so even a poor family, were expected to hire, hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing woman. A professional, so that you would pay for a, a, two flute players to play kind of a dirge or something, and a professional wailing woman. I, I don't even know what that looks like. I can't even comprehend what that looks like. But they would pay someone to be a professional mourner at the, at the funeral to express grief um, on behalf of the, with the family. And the commentators say that Mary, Martha and Lazarus were actually quite a, would have been quite a well-off family. So they would have had more than that Plus, they'd have had friends and families and others from the village and anyone who had come down from Jerusalem, it's said. So they'd have had quite a, a crowd of people who were mourning with them and they would have probably had multiple wailing women and uh, musicians. And so, so Mary's kind of come out of the house where all these people are, sort of mourning the loss of her brother, trying to go and have a private word with Jesus because Martha, her sister's come and said, look, Jesus is here. So she's trying to, and this gaggle of people are coming after them. I imagine some playing, some wailing, you know, so it's a kind of a whole din. And she tries to come to Jesus, and she says the same thing Mary, uh, Martha said, you know, if you'd been here, Lord, uh, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus kind of takes this all in, with Mar- Mary coming to her and saying about what Martha had said, and all these other people, this crowd, which there must have been quite a sort of a noise everything that's going on. And you get this interesting verse in the middle where it says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And what the commentators tell us there is the words that are used when it was written. Um, One of the words there is um, used um, uh, in other sources to describe the snorting of a horse as it's about to go into battle. Have you ever seen those films where a knight on his horse or the cavalry are about to charge and you've got these restless horses about to go. They're about to charge. They're about to fly down the hill towards the enemy and they're snorting and they're pouring the ground and they're ready to go. They're ready to fight. And there's that kind of... This is the same word that Jesus is saying that he was greatly troubled in and of himself. There's a, there's an, the word suggests anger. It suggests outrage. 
it's not a kind of a, sort of a, a fl- soft and fluffy word. It's a word of aggression and moving forward. And so it begs the question: What kind of what was Jesus sort of angry at? What was that internal kind of um, thing that was going on inside him as he kind of processed the scene of Mary coming to him and all these other people? And it, it's, it's twofold. One, there was an anger towards sin and sickness and death in our fallen world. Because the result of Lazarus' death uh, was, you could see the grief on the people there. There was the kind of the wailing and the mourning. He's met Martha, who's clearly upset. He's now met Mary, who's clearly upset. And he, John said he had a peculiar love for this family. So there's the grief there going through. There's the, the kind of the noise around. There's also an anger at the unbelief that would have been there. The kind of this grieving without hope. The commentators say that actually there's, there's anger at sin itself and death and the fact that Lazarus has died and this whole kind of suffering. But actually the, the wailing, the kind of professional wailing would have just been there to just wail and there would have been no hope in what they're talking about. They're just wailing and they're, they're mourning and actually there's no hope in what they're doing. It's a hopeless just end of just ugh when actually Jesus is standing and saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. Hope is here. I'm here. Have faith in me. Have trust in me, and so he, he kind of he has that anger in himself, and he said he goes to the tomb, and what's Jesus' response as he, he reaches the tomb? You know, the famous shortest verse of the Bible. It says Jesus wept. Jesus was not, is not, was not, and is not indifferent to human suffering. He is not removed from human suffering. He doesn't sit on a cloud high above, kind of far removed from everything in this ethereal plane of kind of peace and tranquility that is not touched by the, the muck and mire of our world. Jesus lived in it. He walked in it. He experienced it. He knows what it's like. God the Father knows because his son, we know, we'll see, will die. He's experienced death of a family member. He knows what this is about. And Jesus' response is to weep um, at the tomb. And, they, and the, um, the onlookers interpret those tears as a sign of love um, uh, for Lazarus. He must have loved him, uh, you know, clearly. Thing. But then they also know, almost like, is it a sign of despair? Rightly questioning, this man could heal blind people, people who've been blind from birth. Couldn't he save Lazarus? They're still asking the same question. And again, at this point, nothing's happened. All Jesus has done up. All Jesus has done is turned up, said a few words and cried. Nothing's happened at this point um, out of the ordinary that you'd expect at some kind of funeral or wake. So there's this kind of a response of Jesus. What I'd love to, um, to point out from this one is, number three, is death is not the way it should be. Jesus' response shows us that death is not the way it should be. Romans 5 tells us that, that death entered through sin. And we know if we go back to our, our Genesis account, when it was made in the beginning, there was no sin. Adam and Eve were put in the garden. They were told to tend it. They were told to multiply. They were told to cultivate it. They were told to rule and have dominion. And there was no sin, the Bible said. There was nothing like that. Death is alien to our world. It's not something that should be here. Sickness, suffering and death is not the way we are designed to function. That's not the way we were created in the first place. We go back to the beginning, we have 
perfection with God in, in the garden. Then we have sin, Genesis 3, when everything is shattered, everything is broken, everything is affected. Relationship between man and God is affected, between man and woman is affected, mankind, between man and other man is affected. We see the murder of Cain and Abel with man and the ground is affected. You're now going to have to work hard on that. Even man and new life in terms of the woman in childbearing, you're going to have pain. Everything is broken because of sin. And then what we see in the rest of the Bible is God trying to sort this problem out with his people, trying to gather a people to himself. And if you go through the entire Bible and you get to the end and you go to the final two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, where everything is made new. So you've got the beginning, it was all made um, and it was perfect there. And you go to the end, what does it say? It says... John says, I looked and I saw, and there was a, uh, the new Jerusalem, the new city coming down from heaven. And he says, he says God proclaimed that, you know, I'm going to be with my people, and they will be with me. And he says, there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more dying. It's gone away. That old order has gone away, and something new has begun. And so at the beginning, we see how it was meant to be. And at the end, we see how it will all be wrapped up, which actually just mirrors the beginning It's gone back to the way it should be. And we're living in this section where we're dealing with things that shouldn't be there. We see it worked out in our culture where, particularly this Western, we do everything we can to escape death. Everything. To escape suffering, to alleviate suffering with the balance of medicine and safety and health and safety gone berserk. Um, I I saw this, um, this video yesterday of five dangerous things you should do with your kids. You know, like, let them play with power tools and knives. And this guy was giving a talk of how this is beneficial for kids. But everything in me as a parent was, (laughs) you haven't met my son. Give him him a what? (laughs) But they're saying it's a good experience. But everything in me was, no, I have to protect him. I I have to nurture him. I want to save him from anything in this world that could hurt him or damage him. And we, we project that into our own life. We want to make our lives so safe and so good and so... Uh, you know, nurture. We want to live as long as we possibly can and, and not have to deal with any kind of suffering. And that, the reason of that, if we go back to the Bible, is because it shouldn't be here. We shouldn't have to experience it. And Jesus, in response to that, as he sees it, that's why you can understand his response of anger to what he's seeing, this kind of outrage. This is not how it should be. There's also the compassion in there. He felt compassion for those who were mourning. He wasn't removed from that. He wept and he, he reacted and he's not indifferent to human suffering. And he's looking at this um, knowing what it's like. He knows one day soon he's going to be going through this but he's the one who's going to have to die. And so death is not the way it should be. And so how do we kind of cope with this in our life? How do we kind of act biblically towards this thing? Just a, a few suggestions here. The first one is we need to mourn well. I've been to, as I said, my grandparents' funerals um, in the last few years. And what's the, the, the one overriding kind of cultural thing I had to battle with? And that was, don't cry. I'm, I'm English. My, my wife that, says that to me. You're so English, Julie. <laughs> yes. You know, we have a stiff upper lip. We don't show those emotions. We don't, you know, we hold it together. Especially when I'm conducting things. Um, and talking about the life of my grandparents, it's very much, hold it together, but that's not a biblical thing. We're told to mourn with those who mourn, and weep with those who weep. And we're told to express those emotions, and not bottle it up. I think there is, there's probably something we can learn from the wailing women. Not that, not that we should hire professional mourners, but actually that expressing emotions. And I know, 
I'm still trying to learn it, and we're trying to teach our kids, actually, if, it, if you're sad, you say you're sad, and you be sad, and it's okay to be sad, and it's okay to be unhappy, and it's okay to kind of process those emotions. And if, you, if you're mourning the lost soul, you need to mourn it, you need to mourn well, and you need to be able to express and cry and wail and question and do all those things and not hold it all in to kind of show a good public face. And so, for us, we, we need to be people who mourn well. When bad things happen, we, we're sad about them. We don't try and put a good gloss on them. You'll see them again one day, or, you know, it's sad and it sucks, and we should cry and be upset, and we're going to miss whoever it is has passed on, and we're sad that people are suffering and people are dying, and it's not good and it's not right. And we should be happy to mourn with those who mourn. Next thing I think we should do is also just we should celebrate the hope and life that they've lived, the life they live, but the hope we have in Christ. We almost you need to do too. We need to mourn and be sad, but at the same time celebrate. My grandparents, my dad, had led his dad and mum to the Lord a couple of years before their death. And you kind of thought, Phew, skin of your teeth, but you're in, okay? You know, thinking, Phew. But actually, so we got to celebrate a life. But actually, at the same time, there was also some hope. There was some hope for them. And it's good to celebrate life, good to celebrate what they're seeing, and also good to celebrate the hope we have in Christ. And ultimately, many people, we don't know their spiritual state when they pass away, but we celebrate the fact that our only hope is in Christ. And the last thing I think we can do is we can be uh, on the front foot and adamant about praying for the sick. Jesus demonstrated the kingdom of God when he was around. He prayed, people got healed miraculous things happen. He said to his disciples, he sent them out when he was alive, you go out, given you authority and power. What happened? They came back and said, you'll never guess what. We prayed with people, they got better. It was amazing. And Jesus goes up, returns to heaven after his resurrection and says, wait, the spirit's coming. What happens? The spirit falls on the church, it grows and multiplies and before you know it, they're praying for the sick and they're getting better. Peter and John kind of lead the way. It's all that lame man. And, and on and on through the book of Acts. And we have that commission even now to keep praying for the sick. If you're sick here today or you know someone, it would be lovely to pray for you and pray for God's uh, power in there. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know we're told to pray, so we're going to pray for the sick. Last one. Climax of the story, the bit we've been waiting for. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by, the time, sorry, by this time there will be an odour, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Jewish tradition was that they buried their dead um, in a rock, or in a cave, sorry, a cave in the rock that was either uh, natural or they'd been, it'd been kind of excavated and they sealed it with a stone. This is just like when Jesus died, he was put in a tomb, a stone was put in front of him, that was kind of the normal uh, practice. And Jesus says, take me to the tomb, move the stone out of the way. And Martha, very quite rightly, 
he's going to stink. Sorry, Lord, he's been there four days. It's a warm climate. Meat, dead meat goes off, and it, it smells vile when it goes off. And he said, you know, you don't want to do that because it's just going to really ruin the effect kind of around here that we have to smell him. Do you know what I mean? It's bad enough he's gone. And Jesus reminds them, says to Martha, look, I said to you, you know, you're going to see great things. You're going to see um, the, the, your brother return. You're going to see um, the, the dead rise. And he, Jesus then addresses his father. He thanks his father because Jesus said he only did what he saw the father doing. He addresses his father directly. Um, and the prayer assumes that Jesus had already asked for Lazarus' life to return, and the Father had already said uh, yes um, to that. And it also shows Jesus' intimacy with the Father, his connection with that. And then Jesus calls Lazarus back tonight. Every commentary I wrote made the same point. If, what would have happened if Jesus hadn't said Lazarus? If he had just said, come out. Maybe there would be more than one <laughs> body rising from the dead, such as Jesus' authority. But he was specific. Lazarus, come out. So he calls the dead back to life. I don't know what it must have been like standing there. Because you'd have had Jesus there, you'd have had his 12 disciples there, maybe anyone else who were following him. You'd have had Mary and Martha there, you'd have had all the, the, the consoling friends, you'd have had the professional whalers and the musicians. There'd have been a crowd standing outside the tomb of their dead brother. And then Jesus said, just move the rock. And you're like, seriously, Lord? So some of the guys would have had to go on and move the rock out the way, and there'd have just been an empty kind of black hole um, where the, the tomb would have been. And I, I don't know if it would have all gone silent at that point. Would the wailing women have stopped wailing just for a second? Just, what's going to happen here? And then Jesus shouts. Lazarus, he didn't even go in there. You know, he doesn't lay hands on the sick. He doesn't need that. He just shouts, Lazarus, come out. I'd love to have been there the, two, you know, the second after he finished speaking because it must have been just like, you know, would you have heard the crickets and the tumbleweed go across the front? Do you know what I mean? Just that waiting. Jesus just called a dead guy to life. And then it says, I mean, this is a, it's a, a stunning, but it's almost comical because it says, the man who died came out. Lazarus, obviously, that's a reference to. His hand and feet bound. So he was, you know, he would have come out, because they'd have, they'd have bound him in linen straps, just kind of as grave clothes, and they'd have put kind of spices on there to basically mask the smell. That's why they put the, they put the spices in the linen cloth. And it said that when, um, when the ladies went for Jesus on the, on the third day, they were taking these spices to wrap it so it didn't smell, basically. And so he would have been there, and he literally would have had to... And his face would have been covered. So he couldn't even see where he's going, which, again, is just like... You know, he's raising... One of the most stunning miracles, like raising the dead. And this, this guy, like a penguin, comes out. And then Jesus... I mean, what would everyone have done? Everyone would just be like... You know, just open mouth. And then Jesus, being the, you know, the practical one there, says... just unbind him and let him go, you know, because he's like, he'll fall and hurt himself. That would be, you know, you get raised from the dead and fall over because you can't walk and bang your knee or something. And so he is raised, Lazarus comes forth. I don't know what that would have been like for Mary, Martha, the disciples, the professional whalers. They're suddenly out of a job. It's like, oh, <laughs> it's not a funeral anymore. He's back. Um, incredible. He's... He's called the dead back to life. The, 
most stunning thing. And the last point, and we'll kind of I'll close with this, is um, Lazarus' resurrection foreshadows Jesus' resurrection and our own final resurrection. Lazarus' resurrection foreshadows Jesus' resurrection and our final resurrection. There's much in the New Testament which basically has shadows of things to come. If you, you've got the light here, my shadow's somewhere here. Not very good. There's my shadow. And your shadow kind of has a, it, it, it has the same outline as you, so it has some resemblance to you, but it doesn't show the fullness of who you are. If you look at my shadow, you can see roughly my height, my shape, kind of my arms. You can get a feel for who I am, but you don't see me fully unless you actually look at me. And this, this, this is a, there's a shadow in here of actually Jesus himself is going to rise from the dead. And one day, we too who are in Christ will rise from the dead. It's pointing forward to something bigger. Something bigger. Because Lazarus rose from the dead, but he rose to die again. As stunning as the miracle was, Lazarus came forth, but he died. Again, we don't know exactly how or when, doesn't record in the Bible, but Lazarus still isn't kicking around now. He's, he's died, just like all the others who were there at that funeral. They will have passed away at some point after that. And so, it's, it's like Jesus, but it doesn't have the fullness. There's some key differences between the three. Lazarus rose to die again. Jesus rose to never die again. And we too will rise never to die again. When Lazarus rose, he rose with a human body. He rose with a human body. When Jesus rose, he had a resurrection body, a different kind of body. And so will we when we rise. When we rise from death at the end, we will have a new body. The old order of things will pass away and we will have a new body. Jesus' resurrection body um, was in some way different. They could recognize him. He bore the scars, but yet it had a different quality that he could kind of pass through locked doors and walls. And there was a different dynamic about him. And it was a, a feat of... Corinthians describes it as incorruptible. What was so incorruptible will be born again incorruptible. There was something um, eternal about Jesus' body. Lazarus rose to live an earthy human life. We will rise, and Jesus rose for eternal life. For eternal life. Great difference between the two. So Jesus, um, Lazarus rose from the dead, which would have been a wonderful thing for his family. The commentators generally believe that, that Lazarus would have been married with kids at that time. So they would have been wonderful having a husband and a father back. Mary and Martha got their brother back. Friends would have got their, you know, their, his friends would have got their friends back and, and, and the village would have got one of their members back. But ultimately he was going to die again. And we look forward to a day when that will not be the case. And for us now, just as kind of we draw this to a close, thinking about our life and where we're going in the future, we have to live now putting our active faith and trust in Jesus day by day, week by week, month by month, now enjoying what we're going to receive in fullness even now, but looking forward to the day, one day when we will rise again and be with him forever. We will be forever. This world is passing away. This world is, the Bible says, it's, it's like an old cloth that's just going to be kind of gathered up and thrown out. And what is new is going to come and last for eternity. And we will be part of that as faith in Christ. So I don't know where you are now, what you're kind of thinking, what this topic, what emotions 
This has brought up for you things from the past that you've dealt with, things you're dealing with right now from friends and loved ones, things kind of thinking about the future, thinking about your own mortality and what, what that's got to do with it. But I want to leave it on a note of hope that actually because Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead and it was, we'll see as the gospel goes on that actually it was one of these verifiable facts because there were people wandering around going, that's the guy Jesus rose from the dead and it, it upset the authorities even more, surprise, surprise. That actually this miracle points to something bigger for us that one day we too will see Jesus face to faith and we will rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the death, he was the first fruit. We too will rise after him uh, when everything is wrapped up. And I'm just going to finish by reading that um, bit I referred to. Maybe you want to stand because we're going to stop and the band come and get ready. We're going to worship Jesus. And I'd just love this to be a kind of a, a starting point for our worship and where we go from here that actually... Despite all the, the uncertainty of life in so many areas, despite the, the fragility of life, despite whatever you're going through, your personal circumstances, what you've gone through in the last years, what the, the next few years holds for you, this is still true, and it's true for you, it's true for us, anyone who is a believer in Jesus. This is the same John writing many years later. He wrote the Gospel, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you as a God are not indifferent to pain and suffering and death. Lord God, that you came to earth, you lived as a man and you experienced it all. You experienced what it meant to, to lose friends and people you loved. You, you experienced what it meant to actually die yourself and go through that pain and that suffering, Lord. But I also thank you, God, that you rose again. You rose again victorious and you broke the power of sin and death. I thank you that you hold the keys to death in your hands, Lord, and you can unlock it. Oh, God, I want to thank you that your resurrection... You're raising Lazarus and your resurrection shows us what's going to happen with us. Lord God, that one day we, might, we will die, but we will rise again to see you and be with you forever, Lord. And we, we set our hearts and we set our eyes towards the new beginnings that's coming, this new Jerusalem where the old order has passed away. No more crying, no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. And we will be with you forever, Lord God. I thank you for that, Lord God. I thank you that you comfort, comfort us now and mourn when we mourn. And weep when we weep, Lord God. But I also thank you that we can look forward to something better, bigger and more glorious in the future. Lord Jesus, we want to say we love you and we praise you. And God's people said? Amen. Amen.